Well, first of all, uh, greetings to you all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ from everyone at Grace to you on behalf of John MacArthur, everyone on the staff there at Grace to you, everyone at Grace Community Church. I have to say, whenever I'm somewhere other than California, <clears throat> I have to take a moment to stop and thank you all for praying for us in California. Um, Texas be has become a dear place to me uh, in the three years that I've been in California. And um, I always make it a point, not that you don't know this, not that you don't do this, not that this is not your mindset anyway, but I always make a point whenever I'm here in Texas to remind you of how blessed you are to live in Texas. Um, it is very difficult right now in California. It is a difficult climate in California, uh, not just for churches, but just individuals uh, to really live there uh, under the onerous and, and burdensome regulations and legislation that um, the current political climate has laid out uh, for residents of that state. So um, I just want to take a second to remind you of how blessed you are to live here in Texas. Not that Texas doesn't have its challenges as well, but I just don't know of a, another place that is as uh, egregiously uh, uh, tyrannical uh, as California. You can cut that part out, Rod, if you want. <clears throat> but uh, anyway, thanks again for, uh, for being here this morning. I appreciate it. just want to convey my um, appreciation on behalf of my Just Thinking Podcast co-host, Virgil Walker, who at the same moment is preaching at the Church of Pecan. I think they say Pecan. Is it Pecan or Pe Pecan? I try to get that. Back east, we say Pecan. So... Uh, but the church at Pecan Creek, Virgil is preaching there right now, so he wanted me to convey to you um, his love for you um, and his uh, disappointment that he can't be here, but obviously he's uh, serving the Lord somewhere else right now. I also want to take a moment, not to embarrass anyone, but Rod, I have to say, um, during Ryan's uh, exposition of uh, the book of Ruth, um, and, and Ryan, thank you, brother. I, I, I so appreciate what you said <clears throat> with respect to feeling like you didn't do the book justice because there's so, I don't know any, I don't know if any preacher, or anyone who's expositing the word, I don't care if you're preaching or, bi or leading a Bible study, I don't know that you ever feel like you've done the word of God justice. I don't think you ever, if you ever get a point where you feel like, yeah, I nailed that, you come talk, <laughs> we, we need to have a conversation. But I want to recognize Ryan because I so appreciate anyone who puts in the work. Studying the Word of God is work. It is work. There is, it's like Ryan said, there's so much there. You really have to, it's like getting a hammer and chisel out and you're chiseling it one hammer stroke at a time. It's work. So I really appreciate people like Ryan, people like Rodney, whoever you have uh, here in your leadership who preaches the word of God. Thank you for putting in the work because it is work. It is glorious work, but it is work uh, nonetheless. And I was, as I was listening to Ryan and then following that up with the uh, prayer breakout groups and then hear the call to worship being Psalm 89. I'm like, oh Lord, this stuff is just lining right up with what I want to say this morning. <clears throat> Roddy sort of bracketed with that uh, reading of uh, Philippians 4. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. This is perfect. So anyway, I got Roddy's permission to say all these things before um, I go into my message this morning. Actually, we're going to be all over the the scriptures today, and if you're a listener to the Just Thinking podcast, then you know how much Virgil and I love the Puritans. So you're going to get a lot of Puritanism this morning, whether you like it or not. <clears throat> you're going to get that, uh, and we're going to look at the Word of God together this morning. So, but before I get started, I want you guys to play a little bit of a game with me. Not looking for audible responses, not looking for a show of hands. But where you're sitting right now, just take about 10 seconds, and uh, if I were to ask you, what are the three worst sins that you think you could commit? What would those top three sins be? Just think to yourself, the, the top three absolute worst sins that you think you could commit. Just think that to yourself. 
got them, got your top three or your bottom three <laughs> since we're talking about sins. Okay, now, again, thinking only to yourself, not looking for responses. Be honest, though. Was discontentment one of those top three? Was the sin of discontentment one of those top three? It wasn't in my top three. But that's what I want to talk with you about this morning. I want to talk with you about the danger of discontentment. The danger of discontentment. It was 36 years ago, many of you weren't even born, 36 years ago in the year 1985, where the group Prince and the Revolution released the critically acclaimed album titled Around the World in a Day. The album included two top 10 songs. One song was titled Raspberry Beret, which peaked at number two in the United States. And the second song was a song called Pop Life, which reached number seven. Now, though the somewhat playful and whimsical Raspberry Beret was the album's most successful single, the song Pop Life is my personal favorite from that album because the lyrics of that song pose some very weighty questions that warrant our deliberate consideration as Christians. Now, I'm not gonna sing Pop Life, but I do wanna recite those lyrics just to sort of set some context for us here. In the song Pop Life, Prince is the lead vocalist and he starts with these questions. He says, what's the matter with your life? Is the economy bringing you down? Is the mailman jerking you around? Did you put your million dollar check in someone else's box? Tell me, what's the matter with your world? Was it a boy when you wanted a girl? Don't you know straight hair ain't got no curl? Life it ain't real funky unless it's got that pop. Dig it, pop life. Everybody needs a thrill, pop life. We all got a space to fill, pop life. Everybody wants to be on top, but life it ain't real funky unless it's got that pop. Now, you may find this hard to believe, but I used to DJ house parties back in, back in the day. Believe it or not, don't let the eyeglasses fool you. There, there, there was another life that I lived. But I used to DJ house parties back in the day, and the extended version, the long version of that song, Pop Life, was one of my go-to tracks to help, quote, get the party started, so to speak. But apart from being a popular dance track, fundamentally, when you really hone in on it, Pop Life is a song about contentment, or perhaps better, discontentment, with the state of one's life in this world. Pop life confronts us about the things we long for in this life and our responses, which oftentimes are very fleshly, when those desires and expectations go unmet. Christian author Stephen Arterburn comments on that in his book titled Feeding Your Appetites, where he writes this, quote, when we settle for unhealthy and unfulfilling imitations of what we really desire, our appetites can begin to rage out of control and start controlling us. We will turn to sources of satisfaction that will eventually turn on us and force us either to give up altogether or to overindulge to the bitter end." Unquote. Now, sadly today, many Christians are discontented with their lives. They've become emotionally, spiritually, and in many ways and in instances, mentally and psychologically jaundiced from a sense that their life lacks that pop, that something, that person, that possession, that experience that they believe will provide them with a degree of fulfillment, significance, happiness, and satisfaction that they've longed for but have yet to discover. That actually was Samson's problem in Judges 14. I'm going to read Judges chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. 
Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. Now, it's both interesting and important to note in that passage in Judges 14 that I just read from verses 1 through 4, the significance of that little three-letter word, saw. That word appears three times in the passage that I just read. In the Hebrew, the word saw is not speaking merely of Samson perceiving the woman in Timnah visually with his physical eyes. That word has to do with Samson allowing what he visualized with his physical eyes to develop into a sinful perception, a sinful desire in his mind and in his heart. So it's not just what he saw, it's what he did with what he saw. The Hebrew word saw in Judges 14 is the same Hebrew word that is found in Genesis 3 in the account of Eve and Adam eating of the forbidden fruit. I want to read Genesis chapter 3 verses 4 through 6. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw, that is to say, when she perceived in her heart, when she understood with her mind, when she considered with intent, when she deliberated within herself. That's what that word saw is saying. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. See how dangerous that little three-letter word is? That how dangerous it can be? The great French reformer John Calvin, who lived from 1509 to 1564, in his commentary on Genesis 3, verse 6, where, which says that when the woman saw, Calvin writes this, quote, The impure look of Eve, infected with the poison of concupiscence, concupiscence rather, was both the messenger and the witness of an impure heart. She could previously behold the tree with such sincerity that no desire to eat of it affected her mind. For the faith she had in the word of God was the best guardian of her heart and of all her senses. But now, after the heart had declined from faith and from obedience to the word, she corrupted both herself and all her senses and depravity was diffused through all parts of her soul as well as her body. It is therefore a sign of impious defection that the woman now judges the tree to be good for food, eagerly delights herself in beholding it and persuades herself that it is desirable for the sake of acquiring wisdom. Whereas before she had passed by it a hundred times with unmoved and tranquil look for now, Having shaken off the bridle, her mind wanders dissolutely and intemperately, drawing the body with it to the same licentiousness." Unquote. Now I want to draw your attention for a moment back to Samson in the passage that I just read earlier in Judges 14 and ask you, my dear brother and sister, are you listening, as you listen to the sound of my voice right now this morning, is there something of this world that looks good to you? Remember what Samson told his parents. No, get her for me, for she looks good to me. Is there something, as you're listening to me right now, that looks good to you? Something that you know in your heart is completely outside of the will of God for you, but that you're nonetheless considering pursuing because it will make you more content with your life as it stands right now. Samson knew very well the prohibition God had established against intermarrying with the Philistines. It is a prohibition that is unambiguously laid out by God himself through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I want to read Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 1 through 3. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites, 
and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. Ryan touched on this in his exposition of Ruth this morning. You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. You see, Samson's problem, Samson's problem was that he wanted that pop in his life. He wanted that one thing that was missing, that one thing that would satiate his self-centered desire to gratify himself regardless what it cost. He wanted it so much that he pursued it even against the urging of his own mother and father, not to mention the revealed will of God as it was set forth in the Mosaic Law. In the end, when all was said and done, Samson ended up with more pop than he bargained for. Just read Judges 16, verses 15 through, 20, through 31. Samson ended up with way more pop than he bargained for. You know, as I reflect on how things ended up for Samson, I'm reminded of a hymn titled, Sin, Sin Will Take You Farther. I think it was by a group called, I forget. The Crusaders or somebody like that. From back in the 90s. But they, 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 they wrote a hymn called Sin Will Take You Farther. And the chorus goes like this. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. Slowly but wholly taking control. Sin will leave you longer than you want to stay. Sin will cost you far more than you want to pay. That's what happened to Samson. He just didn't realize it. See, he was pursuing that pop. His life wasn't funky enough. So he kept pursuing this, these women to his own destruction in the end. You see, it is the pursuit of the pop life, which not unlike Samson today has led many professing Christians astray. In their misguided zeal, to appease, mollify, and assuage their feelings that their life ain't real funky. They often find themselves engaged in sinful behaviors that they thought they would never commit, while conversely reaping consequences that they thought they would never experience. But such is the subtle and deceptive allure of discontentment. As the Puritan theologian Ralph Vining who lived from 1621 to 1673, writes in his book, The Sinfulness of Sin, quote, one sin, though committed but once, is one and once too much. Besides, when the serpent's head is in, it is hard to keep out the whole body. One makes way for the other. It is almost impossible to sin once and only once, unquote. At its most fundamental level, discontentment is rooted in misplaced affections. I want to repeat that. At its most fundamental level, discontentment is rooted in misplaced affections. It's as simple as that. It is a failure on our part to seek the things above rather than the things that are on the earth. That's Colossians 3 verses 1 through 3. And our affections, for better or worse, are always a matter of the heart. Always. Always. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Sadly, that is one of those verses in the New Testament we take far too lightly. Where your treasure is, there is your heart also. The 17th century Puritan Thomas Watson who lived from 1620 to 1686 in his classic work, A Body of Divinity, said this of our misplaced affections. Watson said, quote, these, meaning our affections, are as the strings of a violin. They are out of tune. They are the lesser wheels, which are strongly carried by the will, which is the master wheel. 
Our affections are set on wrong objects. Our love is set on sin, our joy on the creature. Our affections are naturally as a sick man's appetite who desires things which are noxious and hurtful to him. He calls for wine in a fever. So we have impure lustings instead of holy longings, Benning says, unquote. Where are your affections today, my friend? Where are your affections as you sit there this morning? Or, or perhaps a better question would be, what are your affections? What are your affections? You see, to answer the latter question is to answer the former question. When you identify the what, it answers the where. The 17th century Puritan William Greenhill, who lived from 1591 to 1671 in his book titled Stop Loving the World. See, that's a Puritan title. See, the Puritans got right to the point. They didn't mess around. Greenhill's book titled Stop Loving the World, he says this, quote, if we are to stop loving the world, let us look much at the other world. There is another world. There is a world to come, and that world is a better world than this world. If we are to get our hearts off the world, which is a very necessary thing, then we must guard our hearts with all diligence. Look as attentively to your hearts as to your eyes, to the food you eat, to your entire life. Keep it with all diligence. Look to your affections and do not let them rove and wander up and down in the world, ranging here and there, unquote. What Greenhill has said here is another way of saying what Jesus said. For where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Greenhill says, don't let your affections rove and wander up and down, ranging from here and there. I'm reminded of the movie Up, where the dogs were always distracted. Squirrel, squirrel. They just, Alpha just couldn't keep them focused on the mission at hand. You, he thinks he's got their attention. Oh, no, squirrel. This is what Greenhill is saying. Stop chasing the squirrels. And if you, you remember from the movie Up, those of you who've seen it, there was never a squirrel. There never was a squirrel. This is what Greenhill is saying. There aren't any squirrels. The squirrels are, you're chasing are in the other world, not this one. At the root of all discontentment is a heart that has lost sight of what Jesus has said is the foremost commandment which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Though not often considered in biblical or theological terms, discontentment is sin. Discontentment is sin because it is evidence that we treasure something or someone more than we treasure Christ. Discontentment pridefully declares to the one who willingly paid our sin debt on the cross, sorry, Lord, but you're just not enough for me. I want more. John Flavel, the Puritan, in his book titled Keeping the Heart, which I highly recommend you read. Keeping, in his book Keeping the Heart, Flavel said this, quote, it would much conduce to the settlement of your hearts to consider that by fretting and discontentedness, you do yourselves more injury than all the afflictions you, you lie under could do. Your own discontentedness is that which arms your troubles with a sting. It is you, Flavel says, it is you who make your burden heavy by struggling under it. Could you but lie quiet under the hand of God, your condition would be much easier and sweeter than it is, unquote. Flavel said, it's you, it's me, it's us who make our burden heavy because we struggle under it. 
It is the height of arrogance and pride for any professing believer to refer to Jesus Christ as Lord and yet somehow regard him as insufficient to satisfy them solely on the basis that their self-absorbed life ain't got that pop. Consider the audaciousness of such a self-centered mindset in light of these words from the Puritan theologian Thomas Watson, who lived from 1620 to 1686, who said this in his book titled The Art of Divine Contentment. Watson said this, quote, in a word, a contented Christian being sweetly captivated under the authority of the word of God desires to be wholly at God's disposal and is willing to live in that sphere and climate where God has set him, unquote. I could end the sermon right there. That's enough conviction right there to walk out the door. He says a contented Christian is willing to live in that sphere and climate where God has set him. You see, the question is, do those words describe you? Do those words describe you this morning? Can you honestly say, as Watson said, that you are willing to live in that sphere and climate where God has set you? It's an important be a question because the sin, and hear me clearly on this, the sin of discontentment is the attitudinal gateway drug to other sins. Discontentment is the attitudinal gateway drug to other sins. Discontentment is such a destructive sin that if left unaddressed, it can and will decimate everything in its path, including your relationships with other people. It is discontentment that leads husbands and wives to engage in adulterous relationships under the mirage that they'll find the happiness they're searching for with someone else. I do a lot of biblical counseling. I've uh, certified through the ACBC. I do a lot of biblical counseling along with uh, my wife, Melissa. And I promise you, every single marital problem we're confronted with begins with some degree of discontentment. Every single one. I don't care what the specific issue is. What feeds that issue is discontentment. It is discontentment that motivates many professing believers in Christ to take on financial obligations that they cannot afford. I don't like my car. I don't like my house. I don't like this. I don't like that. Yeah, let's take out this loan. Let's get this credit card. It is discontentment, the desire for the pop life that contri contributes to increasing numbers of Christians falling into an abyss of spiritual depression and all manner of addictions from which many do not recover. The 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon who lived from 1834 to 1892, often referred to as the Prince of Preachers, said that, quote, contentment is one of the flowers of heaven, and if we would have it, it must be cultivated. It will not grow in us by nature. It is the new nature alone that can produce it, and even then, we must be especially careful and watchful that we maintain and cultivate the grace which God has sown in it, unquote. The English writer and late theologian Gilbert Keith Chesterton, who lived from 1874 to 1936, he's more commonly referred to as G.K. Chesterton, expressed a similar sentiment as Spurgeon when he said this, quote, true contentment is a thing as active as agriculture. It is the power of, listen to this, it is the power, true contentment, G.K. said, is the power of getting out of any situation all that there is in it. It is arduous and it is rare." Unquote. We know from 1 John 5, 19 that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
It is against the, back, that, the backdrop of that spiritual reality that all the, the entire creation lies in the power of the evil one, according to 1 John 5.19. So it's against that backdrop that I'm reminded of the following words from the theologian, again, John Flavel, who rightly said this, quote, Christ has not freed believers in this world from the temptations and assaults of Satan. Even those that are freed from his dominion are not freed from his molestation. Now, why is that significant? Why do I quote Flavel there? It's because one manifestation of the satanic molestation of which Flavel is speaking is that this sinful world is absolutely unrelenting in its efforts to convince you and me that to live for Christ is to somehow miss out on the best things that this passing world have to offer. That's why I quoted Flavel. That's the significance of, of Flavel saying that even though those of us who are free, those of us who are believers, yeah, we're free from Satan's dominion, but we're not free from his molestation. There's always going to be something coming at you from the world to convince you that you're missing out on something. That to obey God is costing you this thing over here. That thing over there, that person over there, that opportunity over here. The mainstream media the internet, social media, television, and even certain elements of, and aspects of the evangelical church are incessantly beckoning us to come up with some reason, some excuse, some subjective and changeable ethical or moral loophole by which we can compromise our biblical confession with a world that wants nothing to do with God or his word. Now, in my role of grace to you, my official job title is Dean of Social Media. So I'm online literally all day, every day. Social media is an ethical and moral cesspool. If you want to see the depravity of the human heart played out, go anywhere online. You only need 30 seconds to see it. The world wants you to compromise who you are. And one of the ways it does that is by convincing you to be discontent. The scriptures declare in 2 Peter 1.3 of Christ that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Christ has already given you and me everything we need in himself. In himself. Whereas the world gives us nothing that is of any lasting value or worth. Absolutely nothing. To be a Christian is to turn one's back to the world and yet it is the pursuit of the pop life that invariably draws us toward the things of the world and away from the things of God. See, two things happen. When the world draws you away, you're not just drawn towards the world, you're drawn away from God simultaneously. So two things happen. You're not just drawn toward, that's, again, that's exactly what happened to Samson. Same thing happened to David. Same thing happened with Eve. Her being drawn to the fruit drew her away from God. We're paying for that decision right now. I want to again quote Thomas Watson from The Art of Defined Contentment. Watson says this, quote, Discontentment takes the heart wholly off from God and fixes it on the present trouble 
so that a man's mind is not upon his prayer, but upon his cross. Unquote. Listen, a discontented Christian is a living, breathing oxymoron. If you're truly regenerate, if you've truly been born again, there's no such thing as a discontented Christian. You've been saved from an eternity in hell. What do you have to complain about? Discontented Christian is a living, breathing oxymoron. And I say that in light of 1 Thessalonians 5.18, which says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. That word everything in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 is the Greek adjective pas, P-A-S, which translated means all, each, any, the whole, and all things of all types. This is why I appreciate being here at a church that values expository preaching. Where you expose, that's what that word means. You, you, you literally expose what these words mean. These, the words that you're reading in the text, what these mean. That little three-letter word, P-A-S, is incredibly significant. So when you look at 1 Thessalonians 5.18, you exposit that word, everything, in the Greek. And you see that it encompasses any situation and everything. What it's saying to us is that the professor believer in Christ is to be genuinely thankful to God for all things, literally and without exception. There are no asterisks there at 1 Thessalonians 5.18. You won't find any fine print there. It means literally all things. In his book, Contentment, Prosperity, and God's Glory, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, who lived from 1599 to 1646, said this, quote, the wheels of a good watch will stay in constant and steady motion, even if a man sits on it or if it is dropped or thrown around. So it is with the heart of a man. If there is grace within and the wheels work rightly, grace will keep the heart steadfast. Let the conditions be as various as possible, whether tossed up or down, this way or that way, the heart will stay the same. So in a constant way, whether in prosperity or adversity, the gracious man will still respond consistently before God. This is exactly what Ra was talking about when he read Philippians 4. Consistently before God. If God brings illness upon him, he rejoices in God and blesses him. You will find pleasant and spiritual things coming from him even then. And if God delivers him and he comes into prosperity, there will you find that his heart still remains heavenly. It remains gracious, spiritual, and raised above created things no matter which condition he is put into. Unquote. One of my favorite verses in the, in the entire Bible, and if you've listened to any number of episodes of Just Thinking Podcast, you have heard me say this repeatedly. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14. I strongly encourage you to, I know not everyone highlights in their Bible, that's fine, but you need to memorize that verse and keep it close. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14 in the New American Standard Translation reads this way. In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider the Lord has made the one as well as the other. In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, remember that the Lord has made the one day as well as the other. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said this, quote, so long as we are receivers of mercy, we must be givers of thanks. Are you suffering today? Be thankful. That's right. Thank the Lord for your suffering. Are you awaiting an answer to prayer today? 
Be thankful. Are you in the midst of a trial today? Be thankful. Are you struggling financially today? Be thankful. We've heard a lot this morning about God's sovereignty, his providence, his goodness. Is your bank account balance lower than what you'd like it to be? Well, be thankful. Remember, when we talk about God's providence, what's the root word there? The root word is provide. God is a provider. No, he may not provide it in the way you hoped. That's why we're talking about this topic of discontentment. You see, the cure for discontentment is gratitude. The cure for discontentment is gratitude. Think about it, beloved. How can you or I or any professing believer in Christ be discontent knowing that Jesus willingly shed his blood on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins? I mean, do you really think you have a right to be discontent? If you happen to think you have a right to be discontent, I want you to consider those rights in light of the following text of Scripture, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 39. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Then there's Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, the ungodly in Romans 5, 6 is you. It's me. It's me. Reflect on that reality against these penetrating words from the 17th century Puritan George Swinnock. Swinnock lived from 1627 to 1673 and said this, quote, We take the size of our sin too low and short and wrong when we measure it by the wrong it does to ourselves our, or, or our families or our neighbors or the nation wherein we live. Indeed, herein somewhat of its evil and mischief does appear. But to take its full length and, pro, and proportion, we must consider the wrong sin does to this great, this glorious, this incomparable God. Sin is incomparably malignant because the God principally injured by it is incomparably excellent, unquote. So tell me, my friend, as you sit there this morning, what's the matter with your life? What's the matter with your life this morning? Is the economy bringing you down? Is the mailman jerking you around? Did he put your million dollar check in someone else's box? What's the matter with your world this morning? Was it a boy when you wanted a girl? Don't you know straight hair ain't got no curl? You see, you could re the, the, the cool thing about these lyrics, the, the song Pop Life, is you could replace the boy, girl, the mailbox, replace all that with whatever it is you want. That you either didn't get or haven't gotten. John Flavel, in his book, Christ Altogether Lovely, which again I encourage you to read, said this, quote, Esteem nothing lovely except as it is enjoyed in Christ or used for the sake of Christ. Love nothing for itself. Love nothing separate from Jesus Christ. In two things we all sin in love of created things. We sin in the excess of our affections, loving them above the proper value of mere created things. We also sin in the inordinacy of our affections, that is to say, we give our love for created things a priority it should never have, unquote. 
listen, the goal of the Christian is not to live a life that's funky, but to live a life that's holy. The Bible speaks of a man in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, who endeavored to live a life that was funky. But he ended up saying to himself, come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? In the end, all that pop meant absolutely nothing. The writer of Hebrews exhorts us in Hebrews 12, 14, to pursue peace with all men and the holiness, and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. A few verses over from that in, in Hebrews 13, 5, we have this exhortation, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? One of the most powerful rhetorical questions in all of scripture right there. What can man do to me? The writer of Hebrews says, we confidently say that the Lord is my helper. Beautiful connection to what we were talking about earlier in the story of Ruth. Any of you Maras out here? Any of you bitter right now? In his commentary on Hebrews 13, 5, where I just quoted, being content with what you have, the noted expositor Matthew Henry has these encouraging words to say, quote, having treasures in heaven, we may be content with mean things here. I like that. Having treasures in heaven, we may be content with mean things here. Those who cannot be so would not be content though God raised their condition. Adam was in paradise yet not contented. Some angels in heaven were not contented. But the Apostle Paul, though abased and empty, had learned in every state and in any state to be content. Philippians 4 again. Christians have reason to be contented with their present lot. Let me just, as an aside here, let me encourage you to go do a Bible study on the word lot. Just the word L-O-T. Especially how, how it is used in the Old Testament. And I think it will help give you a broader, deeper construct of what we're talking about here with regard to discontentment. Talking about Paul, he says, in any state to be content, Christians have reason to be contented with their present lot. This promise contains the sum and substance of all the promises. I will never, no, never leave thee, no, never forsake thee. In the original language, there are no less than five negatives put together to confirm the promise. The true believer shall have the gracious presence of God with him in life, at death, and forever. Then Henry closes with this. Men can do nothing against God, and God can make all that men do against his people to turn to their good. Romans 8.28. How can you make sure your character is free from the love of money? And let me just say here, when, 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 when that verse uh, uh, talks about not loving money, it's not just talking about money. We, we, we talked a lot here about the Puritans use the phrase created things. Any created thing. But how can you make sure your character is free from that? The love of money and any other worldly attractions, temptations, and enticements that may drive you to develop an attitude of discontentment in your heart. Well, you make sure by pursuing holiness, as James 4.4. 4. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And I promise you, you don't want to be in that position. Now, as I prepare to close, I want to quote again the words of Jeremiah Burroughs from his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, where he has these edifying words for us today. Burroughs says this, quote, 
If a man is to be free from discontentment and worry, it is not enough merely to not murmur. But you must be active in sanctifying God's name in the affliction. Indeed, this will distinguish it from a sturdy resolution not to be troubled. So what Burroughs is saying here is that developing a true heart of contentment is not just squinching your eyes and gritting your teeth and clenching your fists and saying, I will not be discontent. I will. No, he says you have to, this, this, this is heart surgery we're talking about here. He says you have to sanctify God in your heart. How do you do that? It's Philippians 4. Though you have a sturdy resolution that you will not be troubled, do you make it a matter of conscience to sanctify God's name in your affliction? And this is where your resolution comes from. The resolution is fine if it comes from a desire to sanctify God in your heart, to glorify God in your present lot. That is the main thing that, still quoting Burroughs, that is the main thing that brings quietness of heart and helps against discontent in a gracious heart. The desire and care your soul has to sanctify God's name in an affliction is what quiets the soul, and this is what others lack. Unquote. A desire to sanctify God, Burroughs says, will quiet your soul in whatever situation you're in. So if you're a Christian today who's harboring a heart attitude of discontentment, I humbly urge you to confess and repent of your sin and to plead with God to help you recognize and appreciate anew the blessed reality that in Christ you have everything you will ever need to live contentedly and joyously, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Thank you guys for coming out. I appreciate it. Thank you, Rob.